Hi, welcome to Agora Community Radio, the podcast for artists in the animation industry who want to listen and learn on the go. This episode is from our A Conversation With series, where we invite pros from all walks of our industry to have a chat with us about their background and experiences, and then we finish it off with a little Q&A from the audience. You can always head on over to our website, agora.community, to watch the full video, or if you just want to listen to what we think are the most interesting bits and pieces of these conversations, you can listen to the Agora Bytes clips on this channel. And now, sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. Welcome to the conversation, everybody. Uh, we have yet another amazing guest on today, someone, surprise, surprise, who's worked with both David and Jacob. Um, seems that there is no ends to their uh, their 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 Kevin Bacon like tendrils in the industry, um, but um, yeah, we have Leif Jeffers here today, uh, who's currently working for Disney, but he's got quite a long track record of working for several big studios. So very very interested to get into his headspace as to like uh, what that journey's been like, and um, and uh, maybe touch on some fun little anecdotes while we're at it. So let's bring in David. And then we'll, uh, of course, do the uh, the leaf introduction. David. Hey, Brent. Hello. It's it seems that we've seen each other not long ago. It, it does seem like maybe like Friday. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's it was very very previous. It was uh, I think Friday. Yeah, actually, yeah, one hundred percent Friday. It was uh, with Elias uh, Tufexis. Yeah, that was pretty cool. So now, uh, as we mentioned last week, okay, let's explore other expertise than. Um, animation. So now today yeah. feels that we're right back to our own base, <laughs> just to regroup a little bit before we, yeah. we go into the other direction again. So yeah. yeah, it'll be a fun one. Yeah, yeah. It sounds uh, sounds like uh, there's been a bunch of overlap there. Um, I, it sounds like a lot of the people who worked in that general area have not everybody, but but there's a number of people that have migrated from a lot of the sort of they've almost touched on all the different studios because they kind of mm -hmm. bounce around. And sometimes just because they're interested in the project, sometimes it's just because, you know, uh, for just they get recruited. Like, I, it's funny because some people just seem to be really, really like sing like they've only worked at Pixar. They've never jumped around. And then there's a whole other group of people that have worked everywhere. It's uh, interesting yeah. to sort of see the difference between certain people. Yeah, I'd say especially in city like uh, LA, for for instance, uh, as soon as you have you know a pretty strong showreel and you already have a few years of experience in other big studio, it seems that the door or more easily opens to the uh, other studio. So it's not yeah. rare that you have those animators that will spend like a couple of days at each one of those big studio. Yeah. And Leaf is is definitely an example of that. So it'll be interesting to discuss his different experience to many yeah. of those. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's bring him in. We can uh, kind of get this conversation on the road. Mr. Leaf Jeffers, how are you, sir? Hey guys, how's it going? Not bad, not bad. How are you? Doing good. good. Thanks for having uh, me. Looking oh, forward to this. Thanks for, thanks for being yeah, here. Thanks for, thanks for accepting our uh, invitation. <laughs> One of the things, uh, Leaf, that actually, even if we, we, we know each other from uh, back in the days and, and we, are, we had a, a hard time to believe that it's been 10 years ago uh, already that we work with uh, each other uh, at Dreamworks. Something that I never knew is the a little bit of the background story of how did you get in animation in the uh, in the first place? Oh, just like in the very beginning? Yeah, the very beginning, uh, because for very, some, very it's beginning. like from the moment that they were like a child, like, oh my God, I'm going to work at Disney and others are just like happy accident that just happened. Yeah. So that was your journey to get to you uh, to uh, in animation. Sure, yeah, my journey was, um just growing up i always loved those like movie magic behind the movies like 
VFX shows that they would have on TV. And um, I always knew I wanted to be in film in some kind and VFX seemed cool. Um, kind of between that and directing or those kind of things. And it kind of followed me all the way from childhood. Like I remember in elementary school going and getting, there's very early 3D um, film set to music called Beyond the Mind's Eye. I don't know if anybody guys saw that, but it's kind of like the lawnmower man style of 3D, like way back in the day. And I would like bring them to cool. elementary class and have them watch it in an art class. And, and so I was always kind of into it. Um, and then later after high school, I decided to go to art school. And um, at the time I asked the school where I was going to like, that I wanted to do directing and visual effects or 3D. And they're like, well, you got to pick one because they're two complete different tracks and you won't have time to do both. So I settled into doing uh, visual effects 3D. Um, still hadn't locked into animation. And it was only a couple of years into school. Um, you know, I went to the Academy of Art University in San Francisco. And at the time, I don't know if they still have, if they had these Pixar classes, which were just portfolio reviewed entry classes taught by Pixar animators. And it was going into those that really kind of, I guess, ignited the flame for animation specifically. Mm-hmm. And then just kind of deep dive from there. Um, and then from there, you know, living at the computer for a few years, I guess. I don't think I've ever really moved away from the computer since then, but um, <laughs> just going there straight to, uh, to Blue Sky. And, and, and for you, was anim- and for you, animation was, was it an expertise that you, that you knew that this is what you wanted to do it or it was more like CG in general. And then it just happened that animation is the, the, the first opportunity that, that you got. Mm-hmm. Well, it wasn't necessarily the first opportunity. It was definitely CG VFX in general. Like I was really into it, but not really knowing the specific discipline that I didn't know enough about it to know the different disciplines. And then it was a combination of seeing the animation stuff that was being done at the studio, at the school at that time. It was having an unexpected opportunity to go see an early screening of Finding Nemo at Pixar and walking around that studio while I was in school and geeking out about all that stuff that those two things kind of combined just kind of made me I don't know pick that path and like being able to embody a character seemed like a fun fun way to spend your time. (laughs) I think there's many people right now in the industry that would uh, have memories of oh you know just special effect in, in general like making entertainment whatever that 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 implies which eventually led to uh, uh, animation so it's funny because we often have the, this idea that most successful animator had a clear plan of action that they executed but the truth is often like well I'm kind of interested in this and this and this and then eventually it kind of leads to an opportunity that that brings I think animators a yeah. position at, at Blue Sky. And I mean and I will say that like I you know I always drew since I was little that was kind of my hobby and pastime and so that was what led me towards art school for sure. And mm-hmm. you know I mean I think with most of us of our age uh, you know Jurassic Park was a big inspiration and just really geeking out about that or Terminator 2 seeing the T-1000, you know, like those type of things. You're like, how in the world do they do that? And it's just, that was fun. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, the same thing for, for me. Although it was, even before that was all of the, like the, the prosthetic or the very physical element that, that would mm-hmm. make, uh, uh, you know, a special effect. But yeah, the Terminator, Terminator um, Jurassic Park, Toy Story 1 are all 
big influence from from the nineties of uh, most of us that ended up in the uh, industry. That yeah, that's for sure. It's kind of weird to think that that was kind of the beginning and it was it feels so long ago and it also feels so not not so long ago at the same time like i went back and watched the, the original toy story and 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 reminded it quickly reminded me that like wow like that was really at the very very beginning you take a look mm-hmm. at the rigs and just the, the animation and like some of the character designs and you compare it to what they're actually producing now and it's just like it, it doesn't it's not even it doesn't even make any sense but it's uh there's such a huge gap that that sort of like literally in so few it's such a relatively few number of years it sort of just grew enormously how like, the capability of these these productions yeah and i mean I, I don't i mean some other people might be able to speak speak more accurately to this but i'm pretty sure even on those first ones they didn't even have ik legs so like you know nope, exactly there no feet slipping yeah. you know yeah the whole right. different world that's right counter animating fk legs that sounds like a lot of fun mm-hmm. oh my god yeah, I would say for having watched a little bit of, of it not, not long ago, I would say probably the two first like Toy Story 1 and Bugs Life didn't age that, that well. But I mean, back in the day, they were literally like almost animating in Excel sheets of entering values yeah. and where this is going to go. So, but starting at Story Story 2 and, and, and then mm. Monsters Inc. And, and Ford, it still aged pretty well, even if it's I agree. Been, uh, like 20 years ago almost mm-hmm. that those movies were, were released. It's just weird because I've lost perspective. Like it, because I remember at the time thinking, "Oh man, this is for sure the future of entertainment." And but I look at it now and I'm like, "Wow!" Like I just we're so spoiled. It just it's so hard to kind of may, remain that sort of uh, like to keep that kind of perspective is very difficult because we're because of the crazy crazy advancements. It's nuts. I mean, even today, I think there's you know very few films that are visually timeless in 3D because it's just yep. it's still moving at such a breakneck pace. Yeah, yeah, yep. I, I I agree. Um, so moving to so, uh, uh, Leif, your 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 first job as an animator was at Blue Sky, right? Mm-hmm. So yes. you've worked at at Blue Sky. We worked a little bit to, uh, together at DreamWorks, and then you went to uh, Riot Games, and then Disney, right? Am I missing one, or that's the the four nope. uh, uh, studio? That's it. Um, uh, I'm curious to maybe go in chron- chronological chronological order um, and have mm-hmm. a little bit of your different experience as those, uh, the, the different studio, because uh, I know that every studio that I work uh, at were kind of very different in, in the sense, um, you know, both the, the, the production, where there were the kind of budget that, that, that we had, the culture and, and all of it. So just have a little bit of an overview of your own experience in each one of those, uh, the, those, those studios. Okay. Um, well, I mean, I think, the biggest difference between the studios that I found is it's culture and style are kind of mm-hmm. the big things. I mean, I think other than that, it's all pretty much the same stuff with a different name. Uh, but like cultural, you know, culture of each studio for me was different. Part of it, I think, is a studio culture. Part of it, I think, is where I was at in my journey or, you know, like, you know, I started, I think I was around 22, 23 when I started at Blue Sky. So then I geared with the other you know, connected with the other people that have a similar age. So that was the time where we all hang out together. We all go out together. It's, it's like, we're all one big family. And so that was a, a really fun time. A lot of, you know, hard work and long hours, but still a lot of fun. Um, and then as, you know, just keeping that thread, when I went over to DreamWorks, you know, I was still younger, but like the, the crowd generally was older at DreamWorks. So a lot more people were at a different stage of their life. They were in... Um, 
having families and they've got their own group of friends. And, you know, some people have been there 20, 30 years, some people maybe five years, there's a range, but you had to find your pocket. Whereas at, at Blue Sky at that time, I could go like, hey, you guys want to go see a movie? And like two thirds of the department would go to the movie. And at DreamWorks, you go, hey, you guys want to go see a movie? And I'd say like maybe one or two. Everybody else is like, no, nah, I've got a life. I got to go do my life, which <laughs> <laughs> is fine. And then culturally at Riot, you know, that was my first time going into the game world. Um, and they're just a very different beast. And I don't have any other points of reference as far as how other game companies are. But it's got a much more tech company mindset of like, you know, um, disrupting industries. And it's a much younger, um, I'd say, talent pool. Um, so then for the first time, I started feeling like slightly on the other side of it. We're like, <laughs> I've got a life now. I've got a little kid at home. I got to go do my thing. Oh, you guys go to your movie. And then Disney has felt like a nice mix of the two. Um, you know, there's different age groups all kind of doing their own thing and getting together and very collaborative and, and fun environment. Um, and if we're going back in time again to the style side, the big difference on those I felt just for me, and I'm sure David, you might've had a different experience at DreamWorks or different things, but just my personal uh, takeaways from it was that I was at Blue Sky during Ice Age 2 and Horton Hears the Who and Ice Age 3 a bit. And um, that was about really pushed animation, really pushed styles. Like, you know, the, the Bible of the studio at the time was um, Cats Don't Dance. And so it was really about like, how can we really have these motions that are appealing and interesting the transitions are appealing and interesting it's like the global shape changes of the characters and how can we play that against each other um you know a little bit more of a frenetic energy across the whole shots and it was it was just very much living into a looney tunes type of style and just how far could we push it in 3d because when i was in school the teachers were saying, no, you can't do that Looney Tunes stuff in 3D. And then I ended up at Blue Sky where like they're totally trying to do that stuff. <laughs> that was a bit of a brain having to learn. Um, and then I went to DreamWorks. And for me, you know, there was a lot of movies going on at DreamWorks. So I didn't necessarily work on all of them. But I got put onto the Dragons movies and mm. movies like that. And so that became much more a study of um, naturalistic and... Um, acting driven choices more than style driven choices, I guess is what I'd say. Mm -hmm. um, and, and again, I think it depends on the show. I think if you were on, I don't know, like Monsters versus Aliens or Penguins or Madagascar, it's much more of a push style, but I was always on those dragons or Rise of the Guardians or Puss in Boots, those type of ones, and it was much more grounded. Um, and so their focus seemed to be more primarily on performance above all else. And like, you know, you would be iterating on your performance, sometimes even as necessary at the cost of polish a little bit. It's like performance was number one on those films. And then Riot was its own separate beast that we can talk about because it was different styles and an a mm. upstart within the company. Um, and then Disney, I feel like stylistically, it, it's at least my impression is, well, yes, naturalistic performances are important. I feel like they lean heavily into 2D graphic appeal, polish and appeal seem to be the thing where we'll iterate the most on. It's like, okay, yes, that facial expression is what it needs to be, but how would you actually draw it? Would you even have those bottom teeth? Would you be a little bit more three quarter? You know, how would you cheat in a drawing and how can we achieve that same thing in 3D? And, you know, and then very clean arcs and clean spacing. Um, yeah, I mean, at DreamWorks, I, would, I was playing around with more like uh, intentional imperfection, so less 
always having smooth arcs. Sometimes you want to have those imperfections to have that believability in the moment. And so Disney is, is so far, it's been much more, we want clean arcs, clean spacing, yeah. 2D appeal, you know, and truthful well, acting if you can. Was it a big clash for, for you uh, going from um, Blue Sky to DreamWorks? Because I, I agree, that especially on uh, How to Train a Dragon, and, and you were on the Rise of the Guardians as well, right? Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and this one was definitely a, we have reference. We, I don't want to say we stick to the reference, but we go get all the little naturalistic details, realistic details. As, as you mentioned, Blue Sky was all about, you know, entertainment appeal. It is to move, go, go, go. Uh, so was, was there a, a clash for you? It was just more like, oh, well, let's go and practice something different for a couple of years. Well, it's, it's funny because like, you know, DreamWorks for me was a lot of toothless animation. So while that's, it's, it's, I could shoot reference, there had to be some filter going through it to get to the, to the character. Um, and so I think there was, no matter what, I think just going back to your initial thing, I think even at Blue Sky, I think my natural tendencies are towards naturalism. Um, and I think that's just based off of the way I was taught and where I put my emphasis when I was learning. And so it was, um, a growth time for me to be able to push into the more cartoony zany stuff. So going into the DreamWorks style kind of felt a little bit more within my default zone. Mm. Um, and then, then it was much more about going like, okay, I animated quadrupeds at Blue Sky, but now I've got to do it realistically. Oh, and it needs to fly. And so I've got to start learning flight mechanics. So a lot of my time in the beginning was watching a lot of like bird videos on BBC Motion Gallery or like one of those Getty images or something to like really understand the way wings move or how the tail influences the direction changes and that kind of stuff was, I felt like on the first dragons where a lot of my energy was. Mm. Um, and then if you're talking like guardians, I was mainly on bunny, the bunny character. So again, there had to be a little bit of filtering uh, through. So I couldn't be like on Jack and be like, okay, my reference, me, what am I going to grab? You know? Yeah. 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 You mentioned some of the research that were done with, you know, a flight cycle, birth and all that for um, for Dragon. Uh, is this part of the process something that you actually uh, enjoyed or for you it was more like, okay, well, let's do the homework, the homework first so we're able to, to do it? Because there for some that is like this exploration phase is like the, the most fun part. And for others, it's just like, oh, can I can I just animate now? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think for me, it's it's all about, um, in order for me to feel like I can do my job effectively, I have to have that knowledge base underneath it, because otherwise I'm going to be bogged down in the mechanics and not be thinking about the performance. And so for me, that learning period is, is really engaging and entertaining for me because I'm learning new information. And that's one of the things I always liked about animation was that you kind of had to know a little bit of all disciplines to be able mm -hmm. to do it, you know, all art forms like like you can't just go like, all right, go make somebody dance. It's like, well, now I gotta go figure out how do you dance or like, what is the right kind of dance and how does their body move and why? And so, cause otherwise, I, at least I found for me, if I don't do that, then I'm not allowing myself to get to the true essence of the acting of the performance. Cause I'm just too worried about, does this leg go here or here? Like, how does it work mechanically? So I think, especially at that point in my career, it's like really about 
understanding that if it's quadruped, then okay, and what kind of quadruped? Okay, I got to figure out how does their rhythm naturally work? You know, if like if it's a, a mammoth for, for Ice Age, it's like, oh, there's a period of time when all the feet are on the ground traveling together. There's not always, you know, on the back feet or front feet, there'll be like a feet were traveling on both sides, wait, on one side together. You know, whereas other animals might always have a foot up in the air, you know, or like birds, like, oh, so much of their movement is coming from the slight angle changes where's the camera <laughs> on the wings, but then the, the tail is there also to help, you know, and where can I use those? Yeah. So it just doesn't detract from it. Yeah, we had a, we, uh, we're running some stream that we answer a, a, a few questions. And one that we had recently was about the, how do we use a reference in, in general? Because mm -hmm. we've seen, especially when you're, teaching or you're looking at showreel you see some reference that it's literally like rotoscopy that they copied exactly what it is and other shows you you don't even understand where how is this reference have been influencing this animation because there's no uh so how is it for you now and maybe how did it evolve uh, uh, over mm -hmm. time the the use of reference yeah and i mean i'll start off by saying like I think some of those where they've really diverged from the reference, some of them are stylistically, they've just diverged and some of them probably got noted away from their reference also, mm -hmm. you know, just through yeah. the iterations with supervisors and directors. Yeah. Um, for me, reference, let's see. Well, I started shooting reference in college for sure and used it. Um, and I think my general relationship with reference has stayed broadly the same where it's like, I will shoot reference until I find something I'm happy with. And then I will, put it up, you know, when I was starting out, there was no bringing it into Maya. So it was just in a quick time next to it that I would time out with the stopwatch and write down notes. Uh, but now you can have it in Maya. Um, but basically I would grab the main key poses from that reference, uh, translate them into the 3D as a general first pass. Then I would go back over those poses and be like, how can I push these poses to be a more appealing version or a more readable version, fitting within whatever the style is of the show you're working on. So if it's Rise of the Guardians, you might be favoring naturalistic behavior over readability sometimes. You know, you might make the poses a little less readable in its silhouette because that's not the driver, it's the performance within versus like a blue sky thing where it's like, okay, I need to, or a Disney thing, I need to push the graphic appeal, make it readable from the silhouette and also not having overlapping things that are, are mess muddying up the image. So I do a pass at that on those main poses. Then depending on the show and what the needs of the shot are, I will start breaking down what the motion is between those. And I usually, it kind of approach it a little bit of a, from a layered standpoint in the way that I'm observing it. Meaning that like, I'll look at the root of the character, you know, their hips and be like, how are they mechanically moving? What's that doing to the hips? What do I want to grab from that to put into my shot? And then I'll work my way up the chain of the body to the chest and then the head until I have a decent blocking that I'm feeling good about. After that point, usually the reference turns off. And then from that point to the end of the shot, I'm just kind of seeing it as what it is on the screen and how can I push it? How can I push and pull it? What's the performance? Is this not actually reading? Did I overcomplicate things? Do I need to strip stuff out? You know? that kind of thing. And that's been my process generally through my whole career. The only thing that's changed is when I was at Blue Sky, I did more thumbnailing. Mm. And as I've progressed in my career, I do less thumbnailing. 
And I think part of that, I just found that I just get frustrated with the time I'm spending doing the thumbnails. I'm like I could already be posing it out in the computer and then I would have a version I could push and pull from there. So like, why not just start there? That works for most shows. I feel like if you're going into a very graphic show and definitely not a reference heavy show, then, you know, then I'll bring the thumbnailing back because it's a necessity to start thinking things in like rhythms and shape languages more than mechanics. Mm -hmm. And then, so then I'll start there. Um, but yeah, I usually always start with reference and I'll say when I started out my career, it would be like sitting in a reference room for 45 minutes to an hour doing the same line over mm -hmm. and over again, and then picking, choosing little bits of each one and cutting them together. And I think as I've gone in my career, and I, I honestly taking an improv class, I guess brought it for me was just having confidence in your choices and knowing that basically any idea you do will ultimately work once you put it through the whole machinery of mm -hmm. your, your process. And so now my reference shooting time is like maybe five to 10 minutes. And then I'll be like, yeah, <laughs> one of these will work. And then I'll pick the one. And then, you know, I just not live or die by my reference. It's like a starting point, you know? That's a huge statement. Oh, go ahead. I just wanted to ask, do you think it's because you got way better at it or because you, you don't suffer from analysis paralysis anymore when you're going and, and look for yeah, all those different options? I think it's analysis paralysis. I think, honestly, it was, it was the, like, improv class. Like, you know, somebody said, oh, go take improv. And I personally didn't enjoy improv. Um, a little bit more introverted on the spot in groups. It's not really my, not really my thing. But what I took away from it that I really liked was like, oh, these people are just making a choice in the moment and then they've got to make it That's work. Right. You know, they have to live or buy, die by that choice and there's no really going back. And then when I just, for whatever reason, after I started shooting reference again, after taking that class, I just started just trusting in my choices more and being like, cool, this will work. You know, and I had this understanding for myself <laughs> for a long time was that throw away your first idea, throw away your second idea. These are going to be your generic ideas and then keep going, keep mining until you find the thing. And for me, whatever reason, there was a light bulb at some point that going like, yes, be mindful of what's cliche, but also don't necessarily throw away that initial idea because what may seem obvious to you may be original to everybody else, you know, because mm -hmm. you all bring your own personality, your own style to things. And so just because it seems like, oh yeah, that's the obvious cliche thing, take a step back and look and like, is it really a cliche, a cliche thing or is it just the way I do things? And would that be a unique thing? And sometimes it works. Other times you're like, no, no, I shouldn't be doing this like 10 times in my shot or you know, whatever it is. But I really like this idea of, of because I've, oft, I've often brought up improv class as being something that more animators should definitely try. And I think it's, and it's funny because it, that particular reason never came up in my brain, but it makes so much sense when you say it, this idea of, of, you know, people that are doing things in front of a camera, like, a, like an actual actor, they need to live in the moment, right? So they need to commit to their choices kind of right then and there, instead of getting hung up and trying to self-direct themselves too much in their brains. And I see a lot of new animators, they really struggle with that. They end up putting, you know, shooting some reference and then just being paralyzed with indecision because of, they just, they just, they, they feel like they don't know how to pick one and just own it and move forward. You know, they mm -hmm. just, they're always worried that, oh, but that maybe that's not the best choice. And there's so many good choices here. But you know, like you said, it's like, there's a good chance that almost all of those ideas could work as long as you then support it and give it the right amount of love. Right. I'm wondering in your mind yeah. though, like, what is your, your, like, what is your mental process? What does it look like when you're validating those choices? I don't know. Like I you said, it, be honestly, aware of cliche, but 
Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I think it's like, uh, honestly, that I think that's the thing that took time. You know, like mm-hmm. building your your taste, I guess, and, you know, right. your acting taste. Um, and so it's, for lack of a better term, it's like just like it's it's got instinct on like going like this feels right, this doesn't feel right to the moment. And I guess filters that I could run it through without really realizing it is like, is it supporting the subtext of the moment more than the the surface level? Because I think that's an important thing. It's making sure then and I think a lot of my time in reference is spent really trying to isolate out me thinking about it as I'm doing it. Because I think a lot of us in animation particular, you have a certain number of shots that you need to do. There's a pose you need to start with, a pose you need to end with, you need to <laughs> grab this cup at some point in the shot. You know, you've got certain landmarks you need to hit. So at least for me, when I'm starting to shoot reference, I'm kind of more in my brain's in the choreography of like, I need to go here, I need to start here. I need to start like this, the camera's here, I need to be looking there. And then my time is really just trying to turn that off and be like, okay, cool. Who cares if the shot is supposed to be looking like this and I'm acting it like this? I can translate it in my head. I can rotate it in my head to go like, I can get what I need from it. So instead, like, turn that part of your brain off. Shoot the reference that just feels true to the moment. Mm-hmm. And then, at least for me, I try to figure out how to reverse engineer if I really was off base from that first pose. And that can be reverse engineering in the computer. That can be reverse engineering by going like, cool, I'll just... I'll just start from my pose and get to that certain point in that animation. And then maybe that'll help me bridge the gap for myself mentally. But beyond that, it's just when I'm watching back my reference, it's trying to go like, all right, I'm looking at my eyes. Am I thinking about what I'm doing or am I just doing it? It's kind of, the, it's kind of the thing. So like if I feel myself, am I reciting a line or am I just doing it? And so some ways I get out of that a little bit. If I'm stuck in the rhythm of it, it's like, all right, fine. I'll turn the audio file off now. And now I'll just memorize the line and just say it at whatever rhythm that works for me, hoping that it's going to stay somewhat within the rhythm of what was there, but I'm not stuck in this loop of it playing over and over again. Um, The other thing that I'm mindful of is trying to catch myself when I've just gone down an echo chamber of the same pose over and over again. Like, you know, I'll do like a minute or two of filming, stop back and look. And it's like, is every time am I doing the same gesture? And that's the only acting choice I'm doing. It's just one gesture. Then I got to make a conscious choice of going like, can you try some other gesture? Just like anything, just try something. (laughs) So those are kind of the things for me that I'm looking out at, at a high, at a high level. I like the the word, the the use of the word truth. Uh, This comes up a lot with actors. I think there's a lot of overlap there um, as there usually is between what an animator's process and and an actor's process. And I think finding the truth in the moment, I think is, especially if you're working on a very performance oriented or performance sort of uh, prioritized scene, like you were mentioning, Mm -hmm. it tends to be the, 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 um, um, the thing that you see a lot of, was it, was it, that was mostly DreamWorks? You said it was more about the performance, right? They were prioritizing that over everything else? I'd say they, they prioritized it the most out of any place I've worked. I mean, I will say Disney definitely has a priority on it. You know, it's there, but I feel like as you're iterating with your supervisors and stuff, it's more on the polish and less on the choices. Right. Um, So there's a bit of a a change. Um, Yeah. You made me think of something with reference that is another thing that I had to get out of the habit of, which was, when you're starting out, or I can't say you, when I was starting out, um, <laughs> I was trying to act as a cartoon, if that makes uh, sense. Yes. So like mm-hmm. if I'm grabbing a cup, I wouldn't just grab the cup. I'd be, I'm going to grab this cup. <laughs> of course. Very deliberate. Like, cool. Anticipation. Like, oh, <laughs> yeah. More like a puppeteer. So, you're puppeting your body. Yeah. 
Exactly. So instead of doing that, like turning that part off and go like, just do it mm. right. And then figure out yeah. how to exaggerate or caricature yeah. as, as the artist afterwards, yeah. Yeah. you're going to be more in the truth of the moment. And I think yeah. that's just so valuable. Well, that segues perfectly to my next question, which, cause you mentioned a couple, you've used the word filter a number of times, which I th- think is really interesting. Cause when you think about a filter, I mean, it comes from that, that particular, well, f- there's lots of different filters, but when I think of filters in this kind of context, I'm thinking about filters you put in front of a lens, right? Something that modifies in some way, something that would be normally right in front of the camera. And I think that's a really, really interesting and very, very um, straightforward way to think about animation, especially when you, when, when you couple it with what you just said, if you could start with the truth of the moment, the performance, and then add filters and front of that you're actually kind of making your life a lot easier rather than trying to get it all right there in front of the camera let's get the truth let's make sure that the performance makes sense and the truth of course some of the checklist would have i'm sure you have your own checklist like what makes something truthful like you said a couple things like subtext and all these other very very important qualities i think you're probably measuring in real time automatically um and then if and then if afterwards you can then apply filters but i'm wondering in your mind what does that what does that look like? What what is what does the filtering process look like? If say for instance you're working at Blue Sky and they're pushing the boundary a little bit on sort of like that kind of Warner Brothers esque looking timing, mm-hmm. like um, how what what is your what does your process usually look like? Um, as soon if you say you're working on a project like that and you're trying you've already got a good performance, you found a really good one. Now you want to layer up all these other things. What kind of what kind of things go through your mind at that point? I'm wondering. Yeah, I mean, I think. At that point, it becomes about design. It's, it's mm. design of motion and design <clears throat> of poses. You know, so it's like, okay, I have the truth of what the acting needs to be. And this is, let's say it's a more serious acting moment, but you still need to fit within a cartoony style. Then you're like, okay, stylistically, the show has strong shape changes, strong line of actions, very pushed expressions. Okay, so now I, I started going through like, okay, my shot, let's say I've got an expression where I'm bored. I'm just, this is my bored face, whatever it is. And then like, okay, I need to push that board. Okay, well, like, if I was to draw this, if I was to be a caricature artist, how would they Mm. exaggerate things within my expression to make it bored, you know, really bored to then be like the half-lidded eyes, the brows, whatever the things are doing, you know? And so for me, it's like going like that filter. It's like, what is the style filter of the show? Mm. Then now let me go through my performance and go like, just for myself, like, I know that this is me trying to be bored. This is me being happy. This is me being excited, whatever. Cool. This is how it came out. Like this, the unique asymmetry of whatever happened when I did it. How can I push that to Mm. support the style, support the rhythms? You know, that's when all the like 2d drawing principles come out of like, you know, your line of actions, your straights versus simplicity versus complexity, you know, readability, you know, silhouette, like those type of things. You start putting them through each of those, checklists of going like okay line of action is this a strong line of action what if i pushed it more and so sometimes for me that'll be just like i have my pose my golden poses i'll have my pose and go to the very next frame that's empty because i'll start and step a lot of time and i'll just be like how can i push that pose i'll try to push it i'll go to the next frame. how could i push that pose try it okay then i compare i frame through those three four poses and go like which is actually the most appealing which is pushed too far and then when i find the one i want i just replace the main pose with that and then continue down to the next thing um i think that's generally how i do most things because like you know very often in animation you're not even animating a human it might be a anthropomorphized animal you know or something like that so you're like cool i made this sneer face but now i've got a character with a snout mm-hmm. how do i translate that feeling onto this snouted character you know so i think naturally we all do it 
to some extent, you know, there's just no other way around it. Um, yeah. And so I think it's just, it's just layering those on. And I think it's just, you know, I think a lot of my animation style has evolved to be stepped pose to pose and transition to spline and go like, you know, moving on from there. But I think in the beginning, I was taught more of a layered animation style, you know, where you like, you just start at the root, make that right. Everything's good. Mm. Then you move up the chain, make that right. Everything's good in the head. And so my splining process still kind of lives in that world. So I think my mind still kind of works in a layering way too. So if you see a lot of my shots, uh, there's a progression in quality, uh, I assume, <laughs> this is what I see as it progresses, like as it goes. It's in the, some animators, like their poses they hit in blocking are their final poses and they just put more poses in between them and then the shot <laughs> is done. That, that's not me. Mine is always an evolution till the end. So it's like, it'll look a little bit more rudimentary and just refine and refine and refine. And so I think that's that same layered approach in my mindset works into how I filter things onto it for style. It'll be like checklist of things, you know, it's, it's strong line of action. It's pushed expressions. Did I do that? Okay. Can I do it more? Okay. All right. Move on to the next thing. And then just cycling through it again and again, getting feedback from other people where they go, yeah, that's too pushed or nah, it doesn't feel like the style of this show. And you like mm-hmm. learn and then you dial in a little bit better on the next shot, you know, as you're starting out. Uh, um, I'm curious, yeah. usually do you, do you show your reference to the director or you keep mm-hmm. it for yourself and you present the blocking instead? I often don't show my reference to the directors unless it's something that's just going to be too time consuming to block out. And it's just, mm-hmm. we're not, I don't have extreme confidence in the idea and it would be a multi-day thing to block out, but a two minute conversation, if I just show the reference, then I'll show the reference. Like I have no issue with showing reference. Like I'm not embarrassed by it. I know it's part of the process. It's just, I'd rather be more representative of what they're actually going to see because things evolve away from the reference. Yeah. Mm Okay. I, I I wanted to say something really quick because I, I wanted to call it out because I thought it was really interesting and I feel like I've used this before myself so I'm, I'm glad that, that we have a parallel thinking here but caricatures I think that a lot animators could learn a lot from caricature artists because they're kind of doing the same thing that animators need to do when they're trying to stylize animation like you were kind of describing it like a characterization like okay good so these are my moments these are my poses how can I make that pose more that pose how do i make that anticipation mm-hmm. read even more clearly and make it bigger and basically like character artists are doing the same thing they're looking at features on a face making noses smaller making noses bigger eyes closer together further apart these are all just exaggerations of truth that lives sort of right in front of them and uh and i don't know i just i really wanted to call it out because i think it's a really good way to describe stylization filtering um and uh, and sort of how to apply it you know it's funny cool. you remind me of a. Uh advice I got early in my career from an animator at Blue Sky that's just, it stuck with me. And because mm-hmm. like they're push style. So your natural inclination is to push your poses. When you exaggerate, you exaggerate your motion, you exaggerate your poses. And they brought up the point to go like, you know, look at it, reframe the way you're looking at this. Instead of exaggerating motion, exaggerate emotion. Mm-hmm. So focus on the internal and let that bubble out into the surface. So like if somebody's the example they gave at the time, is like if somebody's sad, like sad more sad that they've ever been in their life how would that make them feel are they just like sinking and melting into themselves Mm -hmm. well so then like pose that don't just pose like a bigger frown and bigger brows like pose Mm -hmm. what the internal emotion is and exaggerate that interesting and so i think i think that was a big help for me 
and understanding what exaggeration could mean beyond just mm. a bigger version of the same pose. Sometimes it could be smaller, right? Exaggeration doesn't have to be bigger. It sometimes could be taking something that's small and make it even smaller, right? Exaggeration goes both mm -hmm. ways, theoretically. Absolutely. I think a lot of people yeah, forget it, that it, everything it, looks so big all the time. Yeah, totally. It's exaggerating whatever the emotion is or whatever the character you're trying to get across, which yeah. sometimes that's less is more. <laughs> Some, sometimes. So, so Often, you've mentioned that you you've mentioned Liv, that you know uh, at Busca it was definitely more push. So, how do you get from an idea or a uh, uh, even a a reference or performance, and you push it visually to something that's going to be super dynamic? Uh, DreamWorks was a little bit more on the side of let's go get the essence of of the the performance and sometimes the little facial subtlety uh, uh, and all of that. Um, is there something at Disney that you can recognize that you that you had to work on more or some advice that you got there or anything at your time at Disney that made you evolve in a slightly different uh, uh, direction as, a, as an animator? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think 2D graphic appeal is a big one because I mean, like, well, yes, I've been doing it theoretically my whole career. There's a different mm -hmm. emphasis on it at Disney. You know, there's a huge emphasis on um, line breaks and shapes like the way you would think of it as a drawing, like where there's angle changes, you know, in different places and maintaining those and not losing those and letting the architecture of the architecture of the face live in poses, um, learning where the 3D cheats are, you know, where like in 2D, even if I'm talking to you full frontal, the drawing might be a little bit three quarter, you know, because it's just mm -hmm. more appealing to have that three quarter, you know, having those like or like, you know, there's usually like a swoop in here and then an out, like having those subtle line breaks, being mindful of those. Um, I think stylistically in a broader time, especially from coming from DreamWorks, where it was all about on the films I was on, nuance and intentional imperfections and those kind of things, figuring out, you know, how can I simplify without losing the essence of what it is, mm. you know, and it's like, you know, more graphic posing, more, more graphic shape language, but not as pushed as what Blue Sky was doing. It lives more in a truth naturalism, but it's a much more, um, how would you draw this? It's just across the board. So, you know, having some background in drawing, but I wouldn't call myself the most incredible 2D draftsman ever. I mean, David, we've worked with some very incredible ones over the years. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a fun learning experience, you know, and so I'm really in, enjoying that at the moment of like, how can I push that appeal? It, it all lives in appeal, appeal and like uh, using the definition of appeal being the way things relate to each other, you know, within the, within a face, within a body pose and just pushing those ideas. Um, so that's where the growth has been for me and where the fun has been really for the last few shows. Yeah. It seemed that really at Disney since the, and it feels that, Tangled was a, you know, a, a, a turning point uh, where you really feel that, you know, the Glen Keane that is redrawing on so many of those poses and you can feel, I mean, Bolt was already a step in the right direction, but Tangled was just like, okay, now appeal is just screaming uh, mm. uh, out of the screen uh, all of a sudden. And it feels that, you know, since then they never look back. I mean, some some movie might have different style a little bit, but this idea of visual appeal in the, in the posing and in the expression and the performance, all that just stayed uh, for forever. Uh, yeah, I, I feel like I feel like the 2D is just ingrained into the DNA of the studio. 
Mm. You know, and so I think, and you know, we've got some of the old 2D Disney legends still there. And then there's lots of like newer artists who have 2D backgrounds also. So there's just a love of 2D. And even if it's not just the actual act of 2D, but just the approach to 2D. So like even, you know, if I was going to draw something and I was going to have in-betweens in it, like what is the realistic amount of in-betweens you would have if you were drawing this as a pencil versus if you were drawing it or if you were using a computer that has infinite amount of ease in that you can do that quarter pixel width, you know, it's like, is that where you want to spend your frames? You know, so it's a start thinking about things more graphically as if you were drawing it, which I, it, you know, I know there were people at DreamWorks who did that. You know, there was people who come from 2D who even called their poses drawings, you know, and I just was never one of those people. <laughs> so it's like, it's been, it's my evolution as an artist, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead, Brett. Uh, I was just gonna. I was. I was gonna change topic. So if you have a follow up question, then you should go. Uh, go for it, David. I was gonna talk about Riot. Um, yeah, no. For for me, it's just this. Uh, I was wondering because during this time with uh, Tangled and, and you know back there had been a change of leadership back then that you had the you know uh, Jenna Setter and Head Catmull <laughs> that that uh, arrived and kind of helped to restructure a little bit the the animation uh, studio there. Is, is there since you've been at, at Disney? Was there any uh, you know, stories or anything uh, discuss about this uh, transition? Because Disney did a couple like, okay, movies, and then it, very rapidly after Tangle was just like hit after hit after hit. So is there some that live this transition that kind of spoke about it? I mean, you got it? Yeah, unfortunately, I don't have a lot of knowledge on that time. Like when I came was actually when the transition of Lasseter leaving um, and... Mm -hmm and Jennifer Lee coming in. So I don't really have a lot of history. I do, I mean, I heard secondhand, so take it with a grain of salt, that just, you know, a lot was riding on Tangle being successful for the studio. Like if not, then, you know, the studio may not be what it is today, you know? So it's mm -hmm. like, I know there was a lot of pressure on that film. And I think they definitely, from what I hear, had a lot of, um, a big education on appeal from Glenn Keane in particular, like doing drawovers on most of the people's shots and. I feel like the impression I get as an outsider looking in within the department, I feel like that's where a lot of the growth happens for a lot of the team that's still here from that day. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, I, I don't, I can't really speak to it. I just don't know. Brent, go on. I wanted to pivot a little bit because we're the, the time is vanishing um, as it usually does on these, these calls. Um, so riot, let's talk about riot for a mm -hmm. second. Because, because I'm, 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 I have a personal interest in this. So that's why I wanted to talk about it. Okay. So you left to work on what I, well, I'd heard. So, cause I'll, I'll get to the reason why in a second, but there was a dream team that was being formed over there for a while. And I believe this, I saw some of the work that came out of that dream team. Cause they were doing some cinematic like work for their league of legends property that had come out and it hit them, hit the friggin' the, the, the internet and like literally broke the internet. Cause it was just unbelievably good. The, the work that was happening there. Um, and I, I assume that you probably joined to be part of that that team, I guess, right? And you were there for how long? About three years, three, okay. three and a half ish a year, or something like that. Right, but and, and it's so. And at some point, though, that team was disbanded um, for a variety of, 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 I'm sure, complicated reasons. Um, but I mean, what, what was that? What like? I mean, I, I would imagine you would have had some pretty amazing people on that team with you because I heard legendary stories of the, the recruitment process and how they were able to put together some like really, really, really elite animators to, to drive that whole department. Like what was that time like for those, that short three years? I mean, it was, 
it was a mixture of amazing fun and incredible yeah. frustration. It's like a bit yeah. of both because it's like, yeah. you know, it's kind of like a startup in a way within the company. Yeah. So you got to imagine it's a video game company with a mindset yeah. of more of a tech company branching out into narrative storytelling. And yeah. so, you know, they brought a lot of us in to develop stories. They had a story they wanted to start with while they built out their pipeline and team. And, you know, there's a lot of pipeline that needs to be built out if you're building from the ground up of like trying to have like high end oh, yeah. 3D stuff, yeah. you know, and so there was learnings that needed to happen on both sides. And the frustrations usually stem from communication issues of, of terminology, you know, because mm. like, for example, like in the film world, art director means the main artist with a huge artist background that oversees the whole art of the film. Yep. At Riot, for example, an art director may not be an artist at all. That's the main manager of a team of artists. So it's like mm. a different thing. So there's mm. a whole like terminology education need to happen on both sides and a process education that needed to happen if they were going to move from doing, approaching things like a game to how you approach things like a film. And with that, there was uh, tensions and difficulties around just the philosophy of the company is that there is no leaders everybody's mm. equal. Any idea is equal to any other idea. Uh, you know, that's just the approach and film at its nature is not that, yeah, sure. you know, you need no. to have a driving vision Hierarchical. and it yeah. needs to be. And yeah. so there was, there was struggles in time figuring out how do we meld these two approaches, you know, cause we couldn't abandon fully what riot is if we're in riot, but then there's a totally. necessity if you're going to be doing film. Yeah. So that was that was the the challenge of it. There was a lot of fun artistic stuff and a lot of cool opportunities that were you know we had like you know I was able mm -hmm. to write and develop and direct some stuff in development, which was very fun. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but it was about it was a bit of give and take over the years, and ultimately, you know, like you're saying, the team got disbanded, but not because of anything that the team itself was doing. No, which, clearly, stuff was what, great. Which, which was which was sad about it. You know, it was ultimately yeah. it was a leadership change at the head of the yeah. studio. Um, yeah. The CEOs changed, and then a philosophy change of how they wanted to be producing content and right. changing from being internal driven versus where they have to support a pipeline to something more yeah. external. Yeah. And so that was just a shift, and unfortunately, that mean that team started to yeah. get disbanded or or moved right. into other departments. Right. You know, it's, I saw David making a lot of very sympathetic, deep nods <laughs> because <laughs> he directed, he directed uh, things over at IDOS mm -hmm. for a while. And it is culturally very difficult. You're right. Video game yeah. companies are just like, because of the nature of how you make games, they have a completely different sort of concept and perspective on how to organize a team in a much more of a flat kind of strain. Like it's, it's hard. Like anybody can have an opinion on it because it kind of needs to be that way for the game to run properly. But yeah, I can, it, it's in a, so it's, it's like trying to move mountains to get people to understand like, why we should like i mean I, I the number of times i i often find myself like trying to argue like no you should not use jira for instance to track shots in a in a, in a cutscene sequence that is just not a great idea we should use something a bit more standard you know and david god bless him because he had a really good relationship with the uh with the studio director there was able to be like no 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 like if you want me to do this we we need to do it in a certain way but there still needed to be compromises right david like i mean there's no yeah. way around that because a game company is a game company you can't like you said change riot and make it suddenly like act like a video game i mean a, a film company when it's just clearly not what it is yeah, that, yeah. like you yeah, mean, I, yeah go ahead like you mentioned, Leaf, it's it's exactly it feels like game is almost closer to you know 
uh, uh, tech uh, mm -hmm. development in general. Yep. You are basically building a software. It's just that yep. it's entertainment. It, 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 it's a game. Uh, if you're working at AAA production, it's a lot of people and it feels like a marathon because everyone is running in parallel. The story is being built as your character <laughs> design is built, as the programmers are developing the, the and all of it is progressing together as in film. I mean, you start with this and this, and then it's a really race and everyone has its place and don't change the story once your sequence is fine, final in lighting. That yeah. I mean, you can do it if you have unlimited money and, and and time, but it's not the proper way to do it. So there's definitely a uh, a, a clash in the mentality. And yes, it's possible to 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 kind of find a way, but don't assume that by default it'll be easy. Mm. It will not be easy. Yeah, I mean, all. if you like, I don't know if you guys saw like on, on my website, but there's like a a bit of a story reel from something that I was developing at Riot. And it's just a couple minutes of like a, of storyboards that we were doing because they just wanted to make sure it was going in a good direction before we just move forward. And if you look at it, it's all very polished drawing, like way more than we would ever do normally on a film. But it's, it had its purpose. It's there to pitch to people who aren't as familiar with the process and we don't want them to get distracted by bad drawings, you know? Yeah. So there's like, there's those, those approaches you need to shift a little bit because of who you're interacting with. Yeah, yeah I agree with that. The, the level of polishing of many of these storyboards that we needed to be approved by the creative director in game were far superior in polishing than many of the storyboard that we had at DreamWorks, for, for instance, which was basically mm -hmm. where's the character, what is the framing, and you know, what is the shot, and moving on. <laughs> so yeah, it, it definitely different different expectation, different industry, for sure. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because they don't, I don't know. Nah, never mind. I don't even know where I'm going with that. My brain <laughs> shut down. I, got I just, I, I, made having been like working at a, bunch, a, a number of video game companies, it's, it's, it's funny because they're, they're, they all, they all have the same kind of challenge, but it's, it's interesting to see some companies stand out and become clearly, somehow they've found a recipe that allows them to function like a software company, making an interactive experience, but still find a way of put narrative first. Like you take a look at like Naughty Dog and it's, you know, they seem to be continually putting out products. And I mean, their narrative stuff is not even just cutscenes; It's like woven directly into the game experience in a way that some, some studios really try, but just can't manage. I'm really wondering That's what it phenomenal. takes. Like, it is phenomenal because I mean, you because all three of us have been on the inside of knowing how how much needs to like how many people need to get it to, to in order to you know build a pipeline and even just a a structure to be able to like accomplish some of these things and and uh, it doesn't always work out for some you know for some studios but it's very clearly possible because you get you know yeah and I, mean, I mean I think it helps uh, with Naughty Dog right that like is it uh, Neil Druckmann like the Last of Us creator is like yeah at the top of the studio. So you've got somebody who can write a profound script that won mm. the first, like, I think writer's guild award for an animated yep. or for a game yep. leading the studio. So you've got, yep. you just have to have somebody that understands story. Cause I think at the end of the day, at least my experience is that it all boils down to, can you tell a good story? And it's very yep. easy to go. Yeah. Story is easy. I'll just write a thing as a beginning, middle and end. And then to actually do it and be good is a whole totally, yeah, a totally. whole, different, yeah. a whole different thing, you know? Yeah. And it's, it, I think it comes out of priority too, right? Cause I mean, you can, you can say that you want to be able to make a story or make a good story in a game, but 
Are you going to prioritize it? And are, are, are your technical directors, are they going to get the memo that that's a priority as well? Because what I find with a lot of video game companies is that they, unless someone, like you said, at the top is like, here's a vision. This is what we need to do. And this is what we're going to need to be able to do in order to make that happen. And I need everyone to get on board that plan as opposed to just sort of saying it and then assuming that everyone understand what, what, what that means for them in their, in their departments individually. Because most of these people have just been shipping possibly games that like that, that wasn't a priority. And so they're going to make, you know, it, it's, it's amazing that how, how often some of these things become difficult just because people are operating based on their reflex and their sort of what they've done in the past. And so it, sometimes it requires profound change in their, the way that they do things in order to make that kind of thing a priority. Yes. Yeah. I think, and it, it's more than it, you need to prioritize, make it a priority, but it's, it's not that there is a lot of execution and how are you uh, organized because mm -hmm. as much as you can decide that yes the the story is important the characters are important and all that yeah at the end of the day you're making a game it needs to be fun if this totally. section of the game just doesn't work okay well we just have six months we need to remove that and guess what the story has to adapt to the fact yeah. that all yeah. this hour of gameplay doesn't exist anymore so how yeah. are you going to yeah. solve all of the rest yeah to still makes sense of and this is this is why it's super challenging in game to make a good story because the game is totally. constantly evolving to make the yep. best Always. possible game with the time you have. And yes, yeah. even if story is super important, means that it's still in the top five, it will still yeah. need to, to, to be adjusted to whatever the game is becoming over time. Yeah, yeah. Like if they just even change the 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 order of the levels because it makes a better flow for the gameplay and to onboard the player, now suddenly that's going to have a pretty profound impact on the story, probably because that's the the setting for that whole act of the story. Yeah, it's it's it, it for anyone who's worked in games, you probably know what I'm talking about. But it's uh, it can be very challenging. It's like change. It's like trying to make a make a movie, but it's like every day the script changes in very 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 big ways. It's crazy. <laughs> Yeah. So I, I assume so that that change in philosophy at Riot, I probably I would assume gave birth to essentially Arcane because they did partner to an external studio. And um, and we see the results of that, which clearly, even though an amazing team got disbanded, it, it's it's clearly working out for them because uh, Arcane oh, yeah. well, came I mean, out and I, blew everyone's minds. I think it's a little bit more complicated than than that one didn't lead to the other. They were happening at the same time. Right. So okay. Christian, Christian Link, who was leading Arcane, was developing that slowly with his little group while this other team was being built internally. Okay. And I think there was a time where they didn't know what was going to be happening, if they're going to be internal or external. Mm. And, uh, you know, uh, Christian partnered with Fortiche, who he'd used before for a couple of music videos. And they started doing development stuff and it was picking up steam. And then it just, it went through its whole process of like, you know, iterating right. on story and, you know, that kind of thing. So it was, it was always going on while this other thing was going on. And the one thing I will give Riot huge credit for is that they will be the first to say they don't know how to do a certain thing. Mm -hmm. And they will push against things because they like, there's a tech company mindset of going like, how can we disrupt an industry? Mm -hmm. But so far they seem like a dog with a bone and that they don't give up on the thing. They'll just keep trying it until right. it finally clicks with something. Yeah. So, I mean, I, maybe Alexi or, or Christian would be a better people to talk about uh, arcane, but like, I imagine they iterated on that story for a long time until they felt like it was worth taking to the next level. They were willing to commit the resources and the time right. to, to, to have that hard learning. Mm. And it seems to have paid off. I mean, Arcane seems to be doing incredibly well. Very clearly, well. yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, um, go ahead, David. 
Yeah, so, so so we're definitely going to keep some time for the the the, the Q and A. Yeah. Uh, b- before we we do this, I wanted to just have one one step forward and come back to uh, Disney and maybe go a little bit in the uh, um, last uh, uh, two years because uh, obviously you worked on um, Encanto and you you mentioned that it was right at the the, the period where you know okay let. Uh, let's work from home and, and all mm-hmm. that uh, and it was also at a time that you know your uh, daughter was a four-year-old so maybe a two how, how was it because that's something that we've discussed well, often with guests the adaptation of of how they just cope with uh, everything that happened in, in the last two years so how was it for you this transition from overnight you are working from home and you have a daughter at home as well how, how did you deal with that with that situation i mean deal is an interesting word uh let's see it was a <laughs> i would say it, it was a mixture of total stress and pain and huh. and some great things i mean i think it gave me two years with my daughter every day that I wouldn't have had otherwise and very grateful yeah. of that because even the daycares for the first year and a half were closed. Yeah. So she was just at home with us and my wife works at DreamWorks and so we're sitting next to each other, Disney and DreamWorks <laughs> working, taking turns, watching her <laughs> oh, through boy. the day and then making up time at night to try to get to our base hours. Um, so I think for me, you know, we started working from home at the beginning of animation on Raya and we've been at home ever since, even till mm. today. And uh, it was tough. It was a tough transition. I mean, it, it really meant where normally just for a couple of months at the end of a production, you would work overtime. It meant for two years, I've been in a state of overtime. Just because not working those hours, but just having to stay up really late at night to make up mm. my hours to get to basic hours. So, you know, Oddly enough, like I have a lot of strong memories of the films I've made, but Raya and Encanto in particular are a little bit more of a blur just because mm. <laughs> dealing with a lot of like my four-year-olds over here, you know, she started out at two at the beginning of this, so two to four, mm. you know, like having, you know, she can't play by herself. So like no. we have to be like taking turns. So it's like, okay, now I've watched her for four hours. Now I got to make up four hours somewhere. I got to be at this meeting. So it's all just kind of like a, a bit of a marathon. To this moment mm. so it's all kind of blended together and you know and then because we're at home office is here you know 10 steps that way is living room to watch mm. tv so you literally <laughs> you don't really leave like a 20 foot space in a day except for going to walk a dog so it's like it's been an yeah. interesting couple of years um glad gladly will be happy when things get back to a state of normal um but also i was very sad when my daughter started going back to daycare because <laughs> that time was time we never yep. would have had, like I said. And Absolutely. So, I guess it's bittersweet yeah. in some ways, but also tiring. Yeah. Do you know um, if Disney is going to provide a, um, you know, kind of a, a hybrid approach or when it's time to go back, everyone is going to go back in office? Yeah, I don't, I don't know if they've locked in for sure on what they're doing. I think they're going to try some different things out and just kind of see what feels right for the team. Because obviously we've, mm-hmm. some people love working from home and other people mm-hmm hate it so and other people went in the middle <laughs> yeah. somewhere so i don't know what where it'll land you know what the studios want to do ultimately i think that's across the industry i don't know what people are going to do yeah i can really relate to that whole um, bittersweetness i mean like all, all of us parents that are that have been working in this this industry at home, um, I think it's 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 been a challenge in 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 so many different ways. But I do agree that like you know looking back on that, would I have had it any other way? I mean like that those are 
like if I would imagine what what life would have been like normally with my daughter, she's six now, by the way, huge fan of the, the of Canto. I've probably seen that movie oh, at cool. least 50 times now. Um, <laughs> luckily it's a good movie, so I don't mind, but like, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a nice, it's a nice, a nice, uh, it's nice when those things can line up and you, as a, as a parent, you can totally get into the film. Um, and, uh, yeah, she, she, uh, you know, it's, she was, she was young, like, like your children. And so like she uh, growing up, she literally grew up through this pandemic, but yeah, looking back and thinking like, man, there's, what would it have been like to not have got the chance to be that close to her and to learn who she really is? Because normally as a parent who's, who's busy in production, it's, you drop them off at daycare, you pick them up and you're too burnt out. They're too burnt out and you have weekends. That's all you get. And it was interesting yeah. to be able to spend time during the week, but yeah, it just, it would have been nice if uh if you didn't also have to produce a film or a game during that same amount of time it would be yeah ideal. and i will say yeah. disney in particular was very understanding with schedules awesome. so they were okay if you flexed your time because of yeah. that type of stuff or if like oh i'm a little bit late on my shot because of this They're, they were flexible they were understanding everybody's going through this together as totally. a company. And, yeah. I, yeah. and i i think across the industry i i feel likely you know we'll all have a deeper connection with each other as artists on teams because yeah. went through a thing together true <laughs> like there's a, you were in the trenches there's some bonding that happens there or at least yeah. i'll bond with my computer or zoom window something yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right that's right yeah that's right it just unfortunately all social interactions from this point forward will need to be on a two-dimensional screen for you otherwise you don't want to connect with the other person yeah small, i'll freak out small yeah. price to pay yeah exactly <laughs> uh david do you want to transition into questions yeah let's do it okay all right looks like scott pinned some stuff here i'm going to go in there and take a look um, okay. We go, we have a question from, um, Phil, I, I can never say your, your handle. I'm really sorry. It's, but I'll, 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 I'll just say, I'll, I'll just, I'll just say your question. You have, you blocked spline a lot in the beginning. So I think that this was going back to earlier, um, earlier on when we were talking about, um, about your process. I'm trying to remember when this question rolled in to get, to give it context, but have you, have you blocked spline a lot in the beginning? Uh, is yeah, crap. I don't. Well, I'm trying I mean, to I'll, I'll understand. Take, I'll take a shot at this. I'll take a shot at this. Yeah, go for um, it. Go for it. We often play the game of let's pretend we know what this <laughs> means and go. Well, I mean, just talking about blocking and spline versus step for me um, depends very much on the shot that I'm animating. So if it is a shot kind of framed like this camera view right now of me, like shoulders up, close up, not a lot of movement, this type of stuff, I'll likely block it and spline. And I'll have mm -hmm. my key poses. I may even play blast it out on the keys, but I'll block it in spline because that'll I'll be like 80% there if they happen to like what I did. Right. Um, but like if it's like a full body mechanic running, like I did a shot in Encanto where Louisa is holding Mirabelle running through geysers while singing a song. Right. And if it's like full body like that, then like, no, I'm going to start out stepped because I need to figure out the choreography of the shot, mm -hmm. the basic mechanics of the shot. I don't want to tackle it all at once. I want to yeah. do you know, iterate through things to get to that final idea. And so for me, that's been the thing that I've, I've done. Um, as far as like in the beginning of when I was animating, I always started with a more stepped uh, process. I interpreted the same way you did. There. I, yeah. I interpreted the same way you answered the question the first time around um, where it was like, uh, 
like where in the process is do you are you a, are you a stepped kind of person versus are you an auto what, what, can yeah. you re, just re, really quickly reiterate the decision making process it sounds like if the shot's really complex and has a lot of a lot of choreography involved then you'll simplify and you stepped but if it's a little bit more straightforward then you'll go right ahead and go right away to auto is that what you said yeah, usually. Okay. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, like, I'm trying to get more into just splining it as I'm blocking it because there is a huge time save for sure because you don't have the transition, and, you know, because you got it basically where it needs to be, and you can still, you know, play blast it out on just your key frames or on twos or fours, and it'll hide some of right. the weirdness that might be happening in the in between. But I mean, I think if I'm having to do something that's complex <laughs> mechanics, complex choreography it's an easier way for my brain to solve it going pose yeah. to pose on those things. Yeah. If it's something that's less mechanic heavy, mm. then it's very easy for me to just let it be splined, you know, and get there. And it could even be like, if it's somebody walking and talking, but the legs aren't visible on the screen, mm-hmm. you know, it's just like waist up walking and talking. I might do that spline because I may want the rhythm of the body to support it, you know, early on to figure that mm. out. It's once those legs start coming into it, the legs and feet, and they're going to be doing something more complex that I will usually always start with stepped. It's funny. I, it's it's sort of like using filter all over again, but instead of using it to like modify things, it's 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 a way to limit the information. Because I do the same thing when I use stepped. It's often to try to remove distractions so that I can focus on something like a, a smaller sort of sliver of the shot. Because it can be very overwhelming when you're new to animation. You work on a really complicated shot to think of. Like I find when you have too much information, your brain really has a hard time processing it. But if you can be like, look, all I care about is the staging, the overall timing, and basically, you know, those those first initial poses, if I can at least give myself confidence that I have that, then I can move on to the next step, which is where I start to worry about the splines and the way they move. Because a lot of animators, they just start getting distracted and they go down these rabbit holes so early on in the process. And the step can theoretically filter out the the sort of the the temptation to start getting distracted by a lot of those things and we sort of focus on what's important early on. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. I got a question here from Patar. He's usually asking questions. Um, let me, uh, I'm not gonna be able to read the whole, I'll read it first and then I'll bring it up. Cause I can't do both. It doesn't let me do it. Oh crap. Hold on. Is it gonna let me do it? No, it's not. I'm sorry. One sec. All right. I'll read it first. When you're getting supervised um, on a shot, this is a really good question because I've also struggled with this in the past. Um, What do you do when you have a certain way of working, but your supervisor expects you to present your milestones in a different way? Maybe I like working layered, but my super really only knows, uh, sorry, can only visualize if the shot is good or not, if it's in step uh, pose to pose. Should this synergy be discussed early on, like before you even get the job, for instance? Like, is this the kind of thing that that you should be worried about as an animator? I mean, in my experience, there's a bit of, you have to adapt to the style of the studio somewhat, um, mm. depending on the studio, you know, but like, it doesn't mean that like, you have to like change who you are at your core, you know, but you have to get your ideas readable for a blocking, let's say you have to get them readable to where the idea is clearly coming across to your leadership, the director, everybody. So however you get there, the process to that first milestone, I think do whatever you want, but mm-hmm. you need to present something that's going to clearly indicate the idea you're trying to trying to pitch because you're basically pitching, I think it should be this as a performance. And they're going to be looking at it in isolation without knowing a deep conversation of what you're going to do on top of it. They need to be able to just in that moment go, mm-hmm. 
yeah, I can kind of squint my eyes and see where you're going with this. And I want, I want you to go down this path or no, this doesn't meld with the general flow of the sequence or the style or the story point that needs to come across. Like that's the purpose of, of your initial blocking. It's like getting the quickest readable version of your idea out there so that yep. you can have a discussion about it. You know? So I think at a deeper level though, if we're not just talking like at its core, like a layered approach versus something else, I think something that comes with time on a show or time with a studio is that they'll start to learn how you work and what your mm. end result looks like. Like, yep. it's like, oh, he, all, he or she always presents something that's super polished and nice. So this thing that isn't so polished at the beginning, I don't have to worry about the polish. That polish will get there. So I don't mm. have to note about that right now. And I think that's something that just comes with getting to know each other. And it's less about a conversation needs to happen at the beginning, in my experience, and more just something that happens with time. So in the beginning, you will may get more notes on your polish earlier. But then as they go, like they start to build a bit of a Rolodex of your shots in their brain, they go, oh, no, don't have to worry about that part with them. Let's focus on this other thing. It'll get there. Yeah, I would add to, to that, that my, in my experience, it's mm -hmm. never that much your lean or uh, your lead or your supervisor or even the head of animation that has a, a way of presenting but it's more how the director is reacting to what mm -hmm. he's seeing so in vfx they're notorious that coming from movie they, they have a harder time to squint and just see a first you know rough blocking and see so you'll have to push a, a little bit more there are some directors that they really like to see your reference and chat about it and there's other that it will be distracting for them there so it, it's more like the the director is going at the end of the day, the one, the one that will approve the, the shot. How, wh what is the way you, you need to find out what is the way to present this? Because as Leif said, your goal with the blocking is how do I communicate my yeah. performance the easiest way? Uh, you might have a way, but many different directors have different way mm. of reacting to a way or another. So you just kind of steer a little bit in one direction or another, depending on who's the director of the, the, the show. But that's usually the director. It's rarely your lead or supervisor that will, mm. you know, try to force a, a specific workflow for, for you. I've seen it before where there is a bit of a force just because they really, they, they, it, it, but I think it comes down to trust again is like what Leaf was saying, how, they're at the end of the day, just trying to uh, uh, sort of be able to see where that shot's going to go and, and and allow them to exercise their part of the job, which is to make sure that they're pre-filtering and pre-qualifying these things, these things so that they know it's going to fit well into the, the film or whatever you're working on. But I mean, I think the, the big key, key takeaway here is, is to be flexible because uh, you're going to find yourself in situations where regardless of whether your, your supervisor really needs you to work a certain way, it might just make more sense for a certain production. So you want to, like I said, David, as David said, get to get to that as quick as possible, because what you don't want to do is waste weeks on some sort of prototype of a shot and then sell it. And then they're like, yeah, actually it would have been great if they were going from left to right, or like they were crawling into the shot, not running into the shot. Like, re read the manual. Like you should have maybe taken a closer look at the, at the, at the storyboard maybe at that point. So it's about making sure that you're in sync with the production more than anything else. So you're going to have to be flexible with how you approach that probably. Yeah. Um, Here's a, an abstract question that's going to be very difficult to answer, I think. Um, a, a question which is, how difficult is it these days, I'm going to paraphrase a little bit, to get into a place like Disney? Like, it, what's the competition like these days at studios like Disney? Probably I mean, pretty, that's a very, pretty big. That's a tough one to answer. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's hard. I, guess, I don't know. It's like, it really depends. 
It's like, it's you. similar to all the studios, I guess, you know, it's like, yeah. there's yeah. two factors that come into play or maybe three, you know, one is, is there available spots on the mm -hmm. team? Two is what is the quality of your work? And three, what is the quality of the work of your competition of other people that are applying yeah. at that time? You know, and so I think all you can do is do the best work you can and keep an eye out to when studios are looking for people and apply. I mean, I think to set yourself up for success, you should do your best to make the work on your reels of the same quality or better than the movies you're at the studio you're applying to. You know, obviously there's limitations in rigs or lighting or whatever, but the core performance, the core animation has to be at that quality bar because... Yeah. Your competition may be an animator from another studio that's applying with their demo reel from a ton of movies that they've done, or maybe, you know, who knows? Uh, but like, all you can do is control what you do. And so I would just make sure your stuff lives up to that level as best you can. And knowing that there are within a department, junior, mid, senior yeah. level artists, you know, but still you gotta be in that ballpark if you wanna play the game basically. Do you feel like, so when you look at junior level positions coming into a studio like Disney these days, um, is there um, kind of like a bar in your mind, like a certain number, like do, do many people get, like how many people on average do you feel like get hired right out of school, for instance? Do you have even an idea? I don't even have an idea, honestly. Okay. Um, a few. I think yeah, more often I see notifications of people coming from other studios, but it does happen. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. There's also, you know, a place like Disney will have an apprentice program that they'll yeah. do, oh, that's you know, where it, or a training program type thing where yeah. they'll like, you know, they'll bring in more student level people. I see there yeah. where they'll like help uh, hold their hand and guide them and get them yeah. up to speed a bit more, you know, like an, inter an internship um, almost. Yeah. But it's, it's with the hope that they can continue on sure. within the department yeah, yeah. afterwards, whereas internships like a fixed thing. Right. Is there, is there like is, to apply for a program like this? Um, is it, uh, is it like a completely different process? Like can people go to the website and like try to apply to this sort of apprenticeship program or is it just through the main recruiting channel and they just sort of like, as they get ingested into the recruiting sort of machinery, they, the, the recruiters are like, Oh, Hey, this person may be not there yet, but they have, they show promise. Maybe they're a good person to kind of sort over and offer them an, an apprenticeship opportunity. Is it like this or is it a separate application process? Yeah. I can't, I can't really speak with authority on this. Okay. No I, problem. I believe, I, I believe it's something where they actually announced that like, we're looking for applicants for this year's uh, training program type of okay. thing. Okay. So they should keep an ear out for that basically. Yeah. If someone's so interested, yeah. so inclined. Okay, mm -hmm. cool. Um, here's a fun one. So out of all the years and experience, do you have any anecdotes as far as shots that stand out in your mind as being quote unquote interesting or favorite? That's a tough one. <laughs> Yeah, trying to remember all the shots I've done is one problem. <laughs> um, you know, that's a really tough one for me to, to answer a particular shot that's been my favorite. I will say my favorite character that I've mm. animated has been Toothless. Um, mm. Just because oh, yeah. I, I did him you... for, I don't know, four to five, five, six years. I don't know. Animated him for a while, and he was a lot of fun to animate. Like we started off with him, like he was just going to be a very naturalistic monster, dragon mm -hmm. creature, mm -hmm. 
And then there was just one meeting where Chris Sanders threw in one drawing of him sitting up like this weird kangaroo creature thing. And then now it's like, oh, now he's a character. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Grew into this big thing. And it was a fun journey because on the first film, his rig, like where his default eye pose ended up being is very wide eyed was like the max value that the lids could go. So like we started at a max place, which was really kind of an interesting challenge. Like, yeah particular shot that's a really hard one for me to say i mean like on encanto my favorite shot maybe i did was the running through the geyser shot um, how about how about instead of yeah. uh, favorite what if it was like do you have a story about a shot that really sticks out in your mind like something that was was a particularly big disaster or one, a really big victory because <laughs> you thought it started really bad but you 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 got to the end zone anyways any stories like this yeah that's tough for me i mean i, I think I mean, I think every shot feels like at some point it's a disaster and then it makes its way to the crack. I'd say (laughs) if there's one thing I can say about myself is that I get humbled on a regular basis. Even Mm. today, I'm like, oh, this will be easy. It's close up here. No problem. I'll knock that out in two days. Like a week later, I'm like, why did I, why did I I make this acting choice that like is now I have to deal with all these contacts or, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'd say a really fun, challenging shot. I a couple shots I did on Frozen Two was um, Elsa was in the ocean in the dark sea and like fighting the the like or running away from the like water horse, the knock, and like mm. it like is coming up out of the water with towards her, and she's like having to swim over to like this little ice raft she made, and she climbs up on it, and then the knock knocks her up into the air, and then she lands, and then a wave's crashing over her as she's trying to get her bearings. Those were fun because it's probably the most collaborative I've had to be with effects and layout as I'm working on it because literally the surface I'm animating in is an effects element, mm. you know, and then if like they would like rent, they would do a sim of the entire ocean in that region and then the camera would get placed in the area, but then like, okay, this wave isn't working to how we need it. Is there a different part we can make it work with a different wave that's already existing? Then layout has, needs to get involved. And so that was a big back and forth that was a really fun challenge Hmm. and yeah i don't know i like that whole ocean moment in the movie in general it's just cool lighting that yeah that 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 scene is is so epic i remember watching that with my daughter for the first time and i was just like what the effects in that sequence too are just crazy oh yeah they knocked it out of the park for sure i there's one thing I've really noticed with films these days is it just seems like the entire VFX departments have completely evolved to a whole other level. Like I'm just watching these things these days going, what are you talking about? Like, it's just unbelievable. Like the fluids and the, the hair and the, the cloth sim. It's just yeah, it all of make it. it. All and of everything it. that is long and complicated and expensive, yeah. like all of it at once. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Like the I mean, I wizards. I don't know about you guys, but like at least the studios I've worked for, like they always have like some type of movie browser manager thing to see the stuff being worked on by different departments. Mm -hmm. And like one of my go-tos is always to go look at the effects department because there's so much cool stuff that's being done. And there's such force multipliers too, right? Like you take a good shot and then you suddenly put like a really good cloth sim on it and you put like the the hair suddenly moves around and has such believable secondary. It can take a shot and make it an already awesome shot go 
so far to the next stratosphere. It's just unbelievable, unbelievable, unbelievably fun to to, to see your own shot get suddenly. Yeah. And also it, it helps it helps you inform your choices more because then you start realizing, oh, yeah, maybe I can hit that pose a little harder and not yeah. have it drift so much because the cloth is going to overlap or the hair is right. overlap and the secondary motions give it just what it needs. And if I do any more, it's going to muddy it up. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, we got another question here from Sushi Cat. Uh, let's see. So how? Okay, Google, be quiet. <laughs> Google, my Google, she gets very excited. She wants to be part of the conversation on a regular basis. Um, so we've all heard the stories of the quotas of these big studios. They tend to be around three, five seconds. So I'm just, I guess, the, this particular um, um, person in chat here was looking for some specifics on is that still still the case what 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 is what does it look like these days on a feature film when it comes to how long it takes to make a um you know a shot so how long does an average shot take to complete say uh, how long on average would it take to, to complete a 10 second shot on a feature film i mean that's a it has to be a big average because 10 seconds of somebody talking in this frame versus 10 seconds of yeah totally hands and spinning and running and climbing are two different things yeah um but I mean, I will say the quota that most studios I've worked for, I'm trying to think, seems to be around 80-ish frames a week. Okay. It's kind of, it's kind of the, the average, um, you know, and it goes up and down depending on complexity. And we're talking 24 um, frames per second, I assume. Correct. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that's kind of the average on these things. So, I mean, I would say this would probably, depending on complexity, a 10-second shot might make, take me between two to four weeks, depending on mm -hmm. what's happening or how many rounds of notes are happening or how many characters are in the shot. Um, but studio averages, you know, like, when I was at DreamWorks, it was about 80 frames a week. I think it's increased since I've left. Um, Blue Sky, I think, was somewhere around between 80 and 100 frames a week. I don't, mm -hmm. I don't remember exactly. Um, I feel like Disney's a little bit closer to the 80 frames a week. They're a little bit less um, focused on schedules and deadlines mm -hmm. and more about quality. So it's a little right. bit harder to gauge that exactly. Um, the rumors I hear, Pixar is more around 60-ish frames a week. You know, so it's like, and that's rumor. Um, yeah. But like, so I mean, I would say, you know, and I think, I think a good average is between 60 and 110, 120 frames. Somewhere around that would be the range for a mm -hmm. feature feature studio and like yeah, you said it really depends the average because like you have some shots that are like close-ups and you have other shots that have like six characters in it and they're all singing and holding hands and dancing in a circle basically it's a completely different shot so that only works if you're being you know given a, a healthy dose of you know a, ba a balance of those complex shots with the simple shots right because some people might get yeah. shots that are always complicated so they're not expected to deliver as many frames maybe because they're dealing with a lot of extra stuff and it's a communication. It's a constant communication of going like, because like, you know, when you get cast a shot, your supervisor, head of animation, however the show runs it, does their mm. best guess on what the complexity is and how long this yeah. is going to take. But it's a guess. Totally. You know, and so it's a conversation from there. It's like, how did your initial blocking idea go? Did the director hate it? Okay, cool. Let's have a conversation because now I have to reblock. Mm. So now it might be this long, you know, or like, okay, the splining is taking a little longer than we thought. It's just, it's just a constant communication. Yeah. In, in my experience, nobody's holding you holding that against you like production generally is there to support and just make yeah. sure the schedule works out in the end you know yeah. so that might mean like okay all right 
cool. It's taking a little longer. That's fine. These things happen. It's art. It's not like yeah, a yeah, fit thing. So right. like maybe these other two shots we were thinking to give to him, we'll give to this other person who just for chance happened to finish earlier. Yep. And it all just kind of comes yep. out in the wash and there's yeah, not like they're targets really. Yeah. Mostly, and, right? and I yeah. mean, yeah. And I don't think it's, you know, as long as they know you're trying your hardest and yeah. you do good work, ultimately it, it generally works out. Okay. Now certain <laughs> studios put schedule above, yeah, other it's true. Over, even over creative. And then you just need to be mindful of what are the indicators of success at your company and make sure you're hitting yeah. those. Because if you're just yeah. ridiculously slow and the work is good, but that studio prioritizes speed, that doesn't doesn't work out for you. That's, you know? that's a good point. Yep. Yeah, television productions are notorious for being a little bit more schedule like schedule oriented. And it's it's not because they don't want want to like enjoy the quality. It's just that it's like they're on they're it's they're writing a tight they're 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 running a tighter ship basically like you they have to ship more more frequently as opposed to having like you know whatever a good year year and a half sometimes two years in production to be able to push yeah. something push something out you have a lot less wiggle room in a scenario like that so they have no choice but to be a little bit more you know on top of the schedule basically um yeah. we're 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 at time the time vanished as it always wow. does yeah <laughs> It's the it's just the way it goes on this show. It's we 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 feel like we've uh, created some sort of weird wormhole, or some sort of like time space continuum continuum breach. Because every time David and I are in here, we're like we blink and the time's gone. So I wanted to just thank you for hanging out today. It was awesome. Yeah, well, thanks. thanks for having it was great. Super fun. Had a lot of fun. Yeah. I talk about yeah. this stuff all day. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's kind of why we brought you. So that's awesome. And uh, so thank you, chat, for for all the great questions as well. And um, you know, we wish you the best of the rest of your day, David and Leaf and Chat. Have a really good one, and uh, talk to you guys soon. Cheers. Bye. Thanks, Leaf. Thanks, Brent. Bye, Bye. Chat. <laughs> um, lots of great golden nuggets in that conversation. Um, it's uh. You know, hopefully some of you are taking, you know, some notes because I feel like uh, getting inside someone's head who's been doing this for a while and has is, is sort of survived the gauntlet of several um, very, very, very high quality productions. Um, you know, it's, uh, you know, these things are, you know, in, in, the, the funny thing about, you know, thought processes is that it's not to assume that just because it works for somebody, it's going to work for you. But it's, I often say it's worth trying because you never know, right? If it works for somebody, there's a good chance that some of it might work for you. Um, maybe, you know, it, you know, worst case scenario, you try it and you're like, nope, definitely doesn't work. And you just sort of re-verified that your way maybe is, uh, a, it works well for you until you find another possibly better strategy to approach, um, sort of creatively a shot. Um, and, and more often than not, what's usually going to happen is you're going to in incorporate some ideas, um, from, from another person's sort of point of view and try to incorporate that into your workflow, like little, little, little bits and pieces that sort of kind of make you sort of, you know, take a step back and, and think about how that makes a lot of sense. And maybe you should sort of also apply it. Like, you know, a lot of the um, observation Leaf was making about how different studios have different priorities uh, from his perspective. And I, like he said, like, it depends on the production, right? Like he worked on Guardians, which just happened to be a very sort of, you know, a realism grounded based kind of production where you compare that to something like Madagascar and they were definitely other on the other end of that spectrum. So I guess it, you know, really your mileage will vary depending on what your, what production you might be on at a certain company. So, but um, yeah, anyways, hopefully, uh, hopefully these, these little tidbits that sort of pop up in these conversations are helpful for you because that's one of the goals of these, these conversations in the first place is to be able to bring these people with 
crazy amounts of experience and and perspective and just talk a little bit about their their world and 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 sort of the the way that they think about approaching their creative problems on a regular basis and hopefully it'll land on people that are listening and they can they can learn something so thanks for being here chat obviously we're doing it for you in the first place and um we'll see you on the next stream i know we have something happening tomorrow night but i'm not even entirely sure what that is so you can check our schedule for that um otherwise scott probably knows if he's still hanging out which he, which he usually is he's always he's always there always watching um so i'll see you tuesday probably talk to you soon stay animated see you around Thanks for listening to this episode. We hope you got a lot out of it. Agora Community is a free resource for artists in the animation, visual effects and gaming industries, providing daily educational material, free rigs and assets. We also have a range of experts you can purchase affordable animation reviews from to help you level up your skills. You can check it all out at agora.community. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn for updates on upcoming conversations and free animation quick tips. So, until next time, stay tuned and stay animated.